It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. John Maxwell once said, There are two kinds of pride, both good and bad. Good pride represents our dignity and self-respect. Bad pride is the deadly sin of superiority that reeks of conceit and arrogance. Well, that's going to hurt. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough Seeker Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristiansQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's on the table today? Well, Rick, our question is, can our sins ever produce blessing? And our theme text is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Okay, can our sins ever produce blessings? As Christians, we are clearly taught to live our lives in harmony with God's will and His ways by following in the footsteps of of Jesus. We all know this challenge is one we can never fulfill with perfection, and we all have experienced failure along these lines. Because we're imperfect, God expects us to fail, and yet he blesses us. So does this mean he accepts us as we are? Does this mean that our sinful thoughts and actions can actually be sources of blessing? How many times have you made mistakes in judgment or action and through the experiences seen God's blessing and providence come through? So coming up in today's podcast, what does God do when the whole nation of his people sin against him? Does he squash them like bugs? Segment two focuses on one of Israel's earliest and biggest national sins and God's response. And here's a hint, he did not bless them for their sin. So what about individuals? Whether they're in positions of power or merely a worker bee, God's dealings with their sins and their blessings is remarkable. Find out how this works in segments three and four. What's the bottom line on having God bless us even though we're sinful? There is a bottom line, and it's made up of one word. Segment five will reveal that word and the whole story. But first, what does it mean to sin? And what does it really mean to be blessed? The answers are not what most people think. Rick, how do we properly interpret our experiences to reflect what God is blessing us for and what he is leading us through? Well, my friend, that's what we're going to be talking about. To help us out, Julie is back. Hello, Julie. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. I am doing uh, great tonight because I am really excited about this topic. And it's weird to be excited about sin, but I'm, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good things coming up. You know, this question that you ask is, can our sins ever produce blessings? I hope you start out by answering the question because it sounds like maybe bad things can be something God can work with, kind of like a loophole. And is that true? Uh, no. No. Uh, no loopholes. 
Okay? No loopholes. It's pretty simple. All right. So can our sins ever produce blessings? The answer is no. So let, let me explain this a little bit. God's creation is built upon a foundation of harmony. Harmony with God and harmony with his will. The Bible calls this harmony obedience. As we're going to shortly see, sin by its very definition is thought or action outside of the obedience of God. We can never be blessed of God if we dwell in sin. Never. So, am I saying that if we sin, we can never be blessed by God? No. As we soon shall see in this podcast, sin presents an opportunity to make a decision to seek harmony with God. We will see that sin's opportunity is harsh, it's horrible, but it is an opportunity. And Julie, let me just give you, I know it's a little long-winded, but let me give you a quick example, okay, of what I'm trying to say here. Let's say a soldier loses his legs because of a roadside bomb planted by terrorists as an act of war. Afterwards, through much pain and effort, he sees the true meaning of life and becomes a true and selfless follower of Christ. So we look at that experience. When we look at it, do we say, oh, what a blessing war and terrorism and roadside bombs are? Of course, no, no, no. no. (laughs) What we do say is, what a horrible experience and how wonderful it is that this man has learned to use his horrible experiences to help him grow. The blessing came from what that man did with the experience and not the experience itself. And now we can all benefit from this whole experience. So the whole point is receiving a blessing from God which by definition needs some kind of atoning action to even be accessible. It is the access to the atoning for Israel's sacrifices for us as Jesus that brings adoration from God. We'll get into that a little bit later. And Rick, before we go any further, I want to get this straight. Uh, Now, I've made many mistakes in my Christian walk. I've learned and grown from them. I guess you could say I'm stronger and I've matured. So my question is, did or didn't my past sins bless me? Uh, no, your past sins did not bless you. But, uh, but I'm more righteous than I was in the past. I made some progress. And that, my friend, is what blessed you. And we will see. We're going we're gonna to help that all come out as we go through this. But I want to be really clear. Sin never produces blessing. So we have to figure out how to put all of this in perspective. So, Jonathan, let's define what is sin and what is blessing. First, there's two Old Testament words most translated uh, sin. What are they? The first is an offense, sometimes habitual sinfulness, and its penalty, an offender. And the second is to miss, hence figuratively and generally to sin, causatively, led astray, condemn. Okay, so to miss, to sin. In the New Testament, there are several words, but they're all kind of fit together. What's the general definition of sin in the New Testament? Well, it's very similar to the old. It's to miss the mark, sin or evil deed. Okay, it's that simple. Sin means missing the mark. If we're aiming for the target and we miss the bullseye, we have sinned. Even if we're off by a small margin, we have still failed. We've still sinned. Anything less than perfect? Yes, Yes, yes. Anything less than perfect. Depressing, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so let's change that. Let's talk about blessing, okay? Because we know what sin is. Sin is anything less than perfection. What then does blessing mean in Scripture? This I find fascinating. So, Jonathan, there's a couple of Old Testament words for blessing. What, What do they mean? 
Well, the first means a benediction by implication prosperity. And the second is to kneel by implication to bless God as an act of adoration and vice versa. And uh, the scripture, Proverbs 10.33, covers the first definition. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Okay, so benediction or uh, an act of adoration. Let's, let's remember that as we're going to develop this with the New Testament in a moment. But let's notice this. Wealth, next scripture is going to talk about wealth. Wealth comes from God's blessing, God's adoration, God's appreciation, and not from lands or possessions. Think about that as you hear Zechariah 8.13 talking about blessing. It will come about that the just as you were a cursed cursed among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Okay, so here's what we want to understand. You can become a blessing. Let your hands be strong. How do we become a blessing? God's people can be a blessing for others. God's people can be a source of deep appreciation, because that's what I think blessing actually means. And we're going to get to this adoration thing a little bit further. And Jonathan, we're flying through these definitions because we've got so much to cover. New Testament words for blessing, there's two different words. The first one we'll see comes from some scriptures that we're very, very familiar with. But what's the definition? It means supremely blessed, by extension, fortunate, well-off. Okay, to be supremely blessed. Blessing means blessed, okay, fortunate. Jesus plainly defines where our fortune comes from. And for for those of us who, who look at Christianity as a way to get stuff, here is Christian fortune, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are those who are poor in spirit, who are humble, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Where is our inheritance? It's in heaven. It's blessed to not necessarily have, but to be humble. That's the way Jesus was. So that first word for blessing in the New Testament means fortunate, okay? The second word for blessing is the one we're really going to develop. What is the definition there? And this is a long list of meaning, so here we go. Fine speaking, that is elegance of language, commendation, um, reverentially adoration, religiously, benediction, by implication, consecrated, by extension, benefit. Okay. Lots of words. Yeah, and so let's, let's break that down. You notice that blessing isn't a warm and fuzzy thing. It's deep and it's profound. It talks about elegance of language, commendation, like in a eulogy. You know, when you are giving a eulogy, you are seriously appreciating the the deceased individual. That's what you're doing. Reverentially adoration, religiously, a benediction. When, When someone offers a benediction, it is a prayer of adoration of God. So, Jonathan, I think that when we look at blessing, we need to look at it through the eyes of adoration and profound appreciation. Thus, we are able to bless God because we can adore him and we can, we can deeply appreciate him. So is God um, accepting our adoration? Is God like proud of us 
or is he adoring us or are we adoring him? What's the blessing? What, but, how does that flow? See, I think it flows both ways. I think when it says we bless God, that's what it means. We can adore him. When God blesses us, he deeply appreciates us. So how do you get to the point where God blesses you? That's the key question for this entire podcast. Okay, so it works both ways. Another way that blessing is applied, blessedly, be, yeah, try again, Rick. Blessing constantly comes to this world through nature, even though we don't ever think about it. Hebrews 6, 7. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Receives when we put the effort in, there is that blessing from God, that appreciation and that, and that, uh, that, that sense of giving to us. God's purposes are designed to bring blessing, even if it takes a long, long time. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. So did that happen next week for Abraham? No. <laughs> did it happen next year for Abraham? He, it was a long time coming. <laughs> and he only saw the very beginnings of that. So sometimes God's appreciation, God appreciated Abraham's faithfulness. And that was the reward. I'm going to bless you, but in such a way, it's going to take generations and generations for it to unfold. But that's the depth of his appreciation that he can offer to humanity. So it's a big deal to be blessed by God. It's not like, you know, you do something, God pats you on the head and says, nice boy, Jonathan. It's much more, more profound than that. Jesus presents his followers with blessings that are not of this world. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual expression of appreciation from God. See, it, it changes the meaning when we take stuff out of it and see it as God's heart to us and our heart to God. So for Christians, Blessing really means a deep appreciation shown from one individual or group to another and really has very little to do with stuff. Okay, now, as we, we have understanding of sin and understanding of blessing, as we go through this particular podcast, because it's such an unusual question, does sin, do our sins ever produce blessing? We have a Christian questions quiz that Julie has conjured up for us. So, Julie, what is this quiz thing about? All right, so in every segment... I know how much you both love the Bible and how well you know it. So I'm going to name a person from the Bible who committed some pretty serious sins and ask, what does this person have to do with blessing? So by the end of the podcast, you tell me what they all have in common and what they have to do with blessing. The first person I'm going to present to you is Tamar. Now there's two Tamars in the Bible. One is King David's daughter, but the one I'm talking about is found much earlier in Genesis 38. She dressed up as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law Judah into sleeping with her. Great. They had <laughs> they had twins named Perez and Zerah. So there's your first clue. 
Tamar found in Genesis 38. She was a sinner, but what does she have to do with blessing? Yeah, now that's a pretty good question. It <laughs> <That> is. <laughs> okay. More clues coming. Stay okay. tuned. Yeah, yeah, you've heard the phrase, a monkey wrench in the works. <laughs> okay, what do you do with that? We'll, we'll get to it. So, so Jonathan, let, let, let's, let's get, re- refocus here. So let's re-ask the question, can our sins ever produce blessing? So we can now frame that question this way. Can my completely inadequate results ever produce a deep appreciation from God? And Jonathan, based on what I said before, what would the answer be? No. Okay. So that's a resounding no. And you say, well, wait, 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 how come? Hang on, hang on. We're going to get there. So, so again, the answer is God is not bless us through our sins. This leaves us with a large mountain to climb. This is totally depressing. Why would God be so rigid and not accept the results of our efforts? Other podcasts may have show notes, but we have the ultimate bonus episode show notes that simply go way beyond and are much more comprehensive. Look for the CQ Rewind show notes tab on our episode pages. And a big thank you to our Christian Questions volunteer team for releasing this exclusive content every week on ChristianQuestions.com. What we will begin to see unfold puts this depressing defeat into a much larger perspective. We need to understand the biblical principle of our responsibility toward God. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that God only required effort and obedience from his people. He did not require perfection. Okay? God only required effort and obedience from his people. He didn't require perfection. So we've got to develop that. But before we get into that, Julie, uh, we, we introduced your CQ quiz at the end of the last segment, and from here on out, we're going to do it at the beginning of each segment. So go ahead. You already gave us one that really doesn't, it's not a fun thing to think about. What's next? Okay, so our next person is Rahab. Okay. Her story is found in Joshua chapters 2 through 6. She was a young Canaanite prostitute whose great act of faith was telling a lie. So I've got Tamar and Rahab. They're both women. They both lied. But you have three more clues coming, so don't guess yet. <laughs> okay, Jonathan, any ideas, Jonathan? I'm not going to even know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to guess. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah, because you're, I mean, you're talking about sin. and okay, Lots of it. Yeah, and, and we want to say, okay, where does blessing come in in relation to sin? And we've already stated very emphatically that blessing does not come from sin. But you've already contradicted yourself. At the end of the last segment, you said, can my completely inadequate results ever produce deep appreciation from God? Jonathan said no. But now you just said, we see that God only required effort and obedience from his people, not perfection. So they had completely inadequate results, and yet God deeply appreciated them. So which is it? (laughs) They did have completely inadequate results. Okay, and the thing is that our lives are a testimony to overcoming sin. Okay, so the sin is kind of a a catalyst that is in the background. You can have all kinds of different catalysts. What happens where blessing comes is what we do with those things. So I'm going to put you on hold. Let's go to this example, and then we're going to come back. Okay, let's look at Israel. Israel was different than all of the nations, for God was their ruler. They were given a system of judges to rule 
uh, to rule and to manage their society. After a time, the people became restless and wanted to be like everyone else. And Samuel, the prophet at that time, would be the last of those judges. So Israel wanted a change. How did this all happen? Well, I think we've got to go a little bit backwards. We've got to we've got to look at the history before they asked for a king. So I wanted to drop in on Israel in a state of idolatry because for many years they were unfocused and irresponsible. And Samuel, who was a prophet at the time, he was really good. He led them higher. And uh, if we could drop in on 1 Samuel 7, 2-4. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriar Jerem, the, the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented over the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and serve the Lord alone. Okay. Were they going to be perfect by doing that? No. No. Were they being responsible and showing sincere effort? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Would God accept their effort and bless them accordingly? Well, let's see. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Samuel 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Okay, so now I want to just go back, because Julie asked that question. You said, I contradicted myself. Okay, wanted to get this in line, okay? Because here's the difference. When Jonathan said no, he was saying no to this, this, this statement. Can my completely inadequate results ever produce deep appreciation from God? The answer is no. But my completely inadequate efforts can produce oh. blessing. We have to be understanding of what actually produces blessing and what doesn't. So we see Israel, and look, all of Israel, Israel's efforts were, were inadequate in terms of perfection, but they were efforts, and God blessed them. So a period of national sin had ended because they put the idolatry away and they attempted to follow God. God did not bless their sin, but he did bless them when they changed direction. It was about the effort. Even if they made mistakes, they were still making an effort. So now, let's fast forward. There's probably a time frame of about 15 to 20 years between this last change of heart that we saw through Samuel, you know, putting the Philistines away from them, and the action that is the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they now want a king. So Jonathan, let's go to 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 9. We'll break it up in a few pieces. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now, Rick and Julie, this is a different generation from when they turned their hearts back to God, when we read back in 1 Samuel 7, 2 through 4. Um, 
they lack experience, this new generation, uh, about going against God. Now, remember the common phrase, history repeats itself. Yeah, you know, and, and th- Jonathan, that's one of the reasons history repeats itself, because a generation without the experience doesn't have the same fortitude to hold up what the experience taught, because it's secondhand. This is an important principle as we move forward. So now let's get back to the story. They're saying Samuel's too old. They want to change. Now we're going in, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's go to verses 6 through 8. But the thing was displeasing to the, in the sight of Samuel. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So God's response to Samuel is, let it go. They're not rejecting you. Don't take it personally. They're rejecting me because I, God, am their king. Okay, so this is a setup for something really, really bad. So here's what uh, God continues to tell Samuel in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 8. Now then, listen to the voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them the procedure of the king who will reign over them. All right. So, and again, you, you mentioned, Jonathan, this change of heart after all those years of protection was the fading memory and the passing of one generation who lived in fear of the Philistines to another who only heard about the fear of the Philistines. And so God not only puts this in place, but he gives them the, tell Samuel, give them full disclosure. Tell them what's going to happen with this. You know, I've got an example. So us three, we all lived through 9-11 and the fear and the sorrow that it caused. I lost co-workers in the towers and was trying to get on a conference call with them when the first plane hit, not understanding why the phone wouldn't go through. And my 18-year-old niece had to learn about it in school from a textbook. You know, they were, they were living in the shed. They were born in the shadow of 9-11. And while she has a general appreciation for what happened, there's no substitute for living and growing through it. When I visited the Pearl Harbor Museum in Hawaii, I was sad, but not affected. Generations create a natural watering down of the lesson. And I think that's what happened here with Israel. Every new generation would kind of, eh, it wasn't that big of a deal. Right. And, and we have to be very careful about things like that. And this current generation is experiencing uh, COVID-19. We would not have truly understood a epidemic, epidemic except by reading about it in history books. God's permission of evil will be an everlasting remembrance to everyone in God's kingdom. This generation will not forget what life was like living in a sin-sick world and out of harmony with God. Yeah, the idea of social distancing is such a foreign thing, and yet here we are. So what happened to Israel happens to a lot of people, okay? And now here's what's happening. They had left a period of national sin following Samuel and and having God protect them. Now another period of national sin was about to begin, and God would fully disclose those consequences. And we're going to touch on that with 1 Samuel 8, uh, 10 to 11. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. 
he will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And then Samuel continues to list the detailed tyranny of a human monarch. He lists all these different things that's going to happen to their crops and their women and their children and on and on and on, but it's to no avail. 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20 is after Samuel tells them, the people, all of these things, here's the response. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So God did indeed let them have a king. He let them have many kings. Some were evil, some were good. Did God bless them because they sinned and because they had kings? No. And that verse that, Jonathan, you just read, that we may be like all nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. These are the three reasons why they wanted a king. First, so that he could be like all nations, and then the king could judge them since Samuel's sons, they were corrupt and weren't good judges. But they already had a king. See, they had God. And this made them different from other nations who had these wealthy kings. They lived in great palaces. They sat on golden thrones. They were prominently visible to the people during parades and when they were doing feasts and going to war with enemy nations. They wanted a share in the glory of a king, like having national pride like the other nations did. And it's hard to be different from everyone around you, particularly when others seem to have it better than you do. And we're fighting, fighting multiple, uh, sorry, regarding fighting battles. In the book of Judges, we read how Israel had firsthand experience multiple times with other armies and these nations attacking and defeating them. So Israel wanted a more effective national defense, fight fire with fire, our king and our army against yours. The lesson they were supposed to learn was obedience to God's laws would have given them the best possible national defense. But instead of relying on their invisible God to be their protector, they wanted to rely on their own might by having a visible king and his army to get, that we could get behind to go before them into battle. These are good lessons for us. It's hard to be different when everyone around you has something else that you don't have. But be careful. God may make it so that it wasn't supposed to be for you. You're different. So they're given kings, and God never takes the idea of kings away from them. So is it now God's going to bless them through the kings because of the kings? No. God doesn't bless them because of the kings. God does bless them even though they have kings. Why? Because of his promise. See, it's not the sin that brings the blessing of God. When they had good kings, they were blessed, not because of a good king, but because they were his chosen people. Remember Genesis 22, 17 to 18. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." But, but wait, so does that mean that he would have blessed them anyway? Because so there were times when they weren't obeying, they were not blessed. Right. Their, their lands were taken away. The hedge of protection around them was taken away. And armies came and, and, and took them hostage, basically, captive. Right. So but you have this promise. How does that work? Well, see, what happened is God, when he would see them go off track like that, what would he do? He'd bring a prophet on the scene. 
And the prophet would say, the word of the Lord is thus. And it would put things back in order so their efforts would again turn back to God and his blessing would return. It wasn't because they had kings that they were blessed. It's because that they were trying to serve God in those times they were blessed. And the times that they didn't try to serve God, they were punished as a nation. So it's not because of kings, but in spite of the kings that the blessing came to them. And it always revolved around their efforts, their willingness to sacrifice, their, their, their willingness to put aside idolatry and so forth. Okay, So we have to realize it comes through effort, not through sin. So, Julie, how God blesses, what can we wrap up here? National and generational sins against God are seriously detrimental. God would use the unfolding history of Israel's sporadic generational faithfulness to bless them nationally in spite of those massive sins. They made, they committed massive sins. And there were massive periods of time that Israel was out of favor. So realize that the chosen people did suffer consequences when they rejected God and were blessed because they made efforts to accept him. We have to see the difference. God didn't bless them because of their sin. He blessed them because of their efforts to get away from their sin. So a lot of mistakes, but still blessed. Sounds okay until you realize the nation of Israel lost the eventual call to heaven. What examples do we have of an individual sinful decision that seemingly brought blessings? Our YouTube channel has a lot going on. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Featuring new releases every week. Check out our playlists like CQ Kids, Moments That Matter, and CQ Bible 101. Plus, we have even more new series content planned to roll out soon. So stay tuned at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So what sin caused King David's great pain to many people? We immediately think of the story of Bathsheba in which David caused her husband Uriah to be killed in battle to satisfy David's own lust for Uriah's wife. But did you know that there's another great sin of David's resulting in a tragic consequence? It's not like that one was bad enough. There's yet another one much later in his life. I'm going to touch on that again with the question, can our sins ever produce blessings. But before we go there, Julie, I have to ask you, who's the next person? What does this next person have to do with blessing? Well, it's interesting you mentioned David because David himself is going to be a clue, but I'll give you another one, his son, King Solomon. So according to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 10, Solomon broke God's laws by marrying foreign wives and was influenced by them, worshiping and building shrines to various gods. So I wanted to read you just a few excerpts from that 1 Kings 11, 1 to 10. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to other gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. I'm going to pause. He had 700 of them. Yeah, 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He built shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So we've got Tamar, 
Rahab, David, and Solomon, what do these sinners have to do with blessing? <laughs> you know, it's interesting because Solomon started out as the wisest man in all the world. Ugh, and he couldn't get this. He had to have a thousand women. Really? Well, he may have been the wisest man in all of the world, but he was a man of great desire, and his he did not apply his wisdom to his own desire. And, you know, great power brings great responsibility. And we won't go there, but uh, interesting, what does Solomon have to do with his blessing when you put it in that light? Okay, that's a good question. That's why it's called the CQ Quiz. All right, so let's get to David and another sin. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's another <laughs> sin we're going to talk about. The account that we're going to be looking at is found in two places, in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. So Jonathan, let's go to the 2 Samuel 24, verses 1 to 3 to start. And now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of our Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord, the king, delight in this thing? So basically, David wants to take a census. And the first Chronicles version of that last thing that, that Jonathan just read, but why does my Lord, the king, seek this thing? The first Chronicles versions has Joab saying, why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? This was a really big deal. Okay. So, and you know, perhaps... David was either using the numbers as a source of pride because of his own kingship and military might or wanted the security of knowing he had enough fighting men to counter invaders. We, we don't know. Either way, either way, either way, he was not relying on the Lord's promise to, as it says in 1 Chronicles 27 and 23, to increase Israel like to the stars of heaven. So the point of this was there was no acceptable purpose for this count, for this census taking. And there, there was no specific command from God to do it, because in previous scriptures, when they took a census, it was a big deal, and God actually commanded it. David never ascertained the will of God in this, so we can conclude that David's motivation was sinful. That's why you said, Rick, well, maybe he wanted to see how many people he had because he wanted to boast about his big army, or maybe he just was insecure and wanted to make sure he had enough. Either way, we've established it was not the right thing to do. So it was sinful, plain That's and simple. Correct, because he missed the mark. He did. He missed the mark in a big way because that kind of thing was to come from God. So this is a costly individual sin, and it's about to occur by a man in an extremely influential position. Something good will come from this entire experience. Comes down the road, but it will come. Will God bless the sin of David? Well, let's go back to the uh, account. Let's go to the First Chronicles account, 21, uh, verses 4 through 6. But the king insisted that they take the census, so Joab traveled throughout all Israel to count the people. Then he returned to Jerusalem and reported the number of people to David. There were 1,100,000 warriors in all Israel who could handle a sword and 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include the tribes of Levi and Benjamin in the census because he was so distressed at what the king had made him do. 
<laughs> so it's interesting that uh, Joab is, is scared to death because he knows better. So those around David knew it was wrong. Joab was his nephew and the captain of David's army. Joab's example to us is really, really beneficial. Yeah, I thought the lesson from that was we need to speak up when those around us are clearly heading down the wrong path. You know, even if they don't listen to our scriptural advice, in this case, we should all be like Joab, challenging those around us to depend on God instead of giving in to fear or pride. And just a side note, Joab wasn't always a good person, so he, you know, he does have his issues down the road. But in this case, we want to be a Joab and not be afraid to come to people that we know are doing something that is not in God's will. So David is traveling down a road of his own, and he's deciding as king, I will do this. And there is great, great folly in such decisions when you are God's chosen people. A full 10 months later, after David got the majority of the numbers that he was looking for, David, after 10 months, is finally repentant. First Chronicles 21.8. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So finally, David gets it, right? He knows what he did wrong. And this is one of the only places in the Bible that I know of where David got to choose his own punishment. And so each one had its own time frame. So here's what his choices were. And the prophet Gad came to him and said, look, you either get three years of famine, three years of fleeing from your enemies. Three months. Oh, I'm sorry. Three months of fleeing from your enemies or three days of pestilence from the Lord. And one um, one. Translation says the angel of Jehovah destroying throughout the borders of Israel. So three years, three months, or three days. And we think we see David's heart condition because he chose that third option, that three days, because he stated he would rather fall into the merciful hands of God than of man who would have triumphed in the misfortunes of Israel. So notice he chose the one option that being in a position of a king could not afford any protection. Three days of pestilence, it would affect the king. Well, Rick, it's obvious. Sin brings consequences. We've seen national sin, we've seen kingly sin, and now we've seen personal sin. And every end result is they sinned, it brings a punishment. Yeah, and this punishment for this particular sin is pretty, pretty serious. Let's take a look at it. 2 Samuel 24, 15 to 16. So Jehovah sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed, And there died of the people from Dan, even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, Jehovah repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Now stay thy hand. And the angel of Jehovah was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Okay, now that's going to be significant in a moment. At first glance, a glance, it seems unsettling that the nation had to suffer because of one man. But I remind you, remember Adam. The world suffers because of one man's sin there. Remember, God had earlier warned the people of the undesirable effects of being ruled by a king, and here's what you've got. Yeah, and, this oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Julie. You know, it's interesting because this angel that's a destroying angel, it looks like he didn't even get the full three days. 
So Jehovah repents of the evil and says to the angel, okay, hold on. It's enough. Stay thy hand. Stop this killing, even after 70,000 died. And it reminds me of God not wanting sin and consequences to go on one second longer than it needs to. You know, David got his punishment. He got it. And there was no need to keep going. So he stops right at this threshing floor. But the people weren't innocent. Remember, this is a whole study unto itself. There were specific incidents of rebellion that happened right before this. God was angry at the people. All good points. And a question came to my mind. Does God judge other nations like he does Israel? We have over 55,000 died in the United States from a, a pestilence. Uh, does God judge other, pe- other nations? No, no, and no. And just to be clear, no. <laughs> Israel's judgments were very, very specific because Israel's favor was very, very specific. With greater favor comes greater responsibility. Israel was striving to be in harmony with God, and that's why they had sacrifices. That's why they had the tabernacle. That's why they had the temple, because it was always trying to be in line with the will of God. No other nation in the earth has ever had that favor, and therefore no other nation in the earth has ever had that level of punishment from God. Now, the world lives in sin and iniquity. That's a different kind of story. This is direct God to Israel Israel to God. We have to make sure we understand that clearly. So thank you for that specific question. So the prophet Gad instructs David to set up an altar on the threshing floor, you know, where that angel of death had been stopped. God accepts the sacrifice that's made. And here's the cool part. This very spot becomes the site of the temple of Solomon, the the, the temple that he builds, David's son. Jesus would later teach at this very spot And today, this same site in Jerusalem is the holy site where currently sits the Muslim Dome of the Rock. So all of the sacrifices were now moved to this little threshing floor, and this was where um, all of the atonement for sin was going to happen. So was it a blessing from all this sin? Okay, was it a blessing from sin? No. No even though that, that spot became literally a holy spot, as you mentioned, in so many different ways. What is the blessing is the fact that the repentance was in place. The sin had happened, and the repentance was in place, and God honored the repentance and honored his mercy. Julie, like you said, sin, he does not allow destruction to go on one second longer than it needs to. He honored that. Atonement for sin does not avoid the consequence of sin. We pay the price of sin, but atonement can lift us through it. So do our sins ever produce blessings? No. It's the efforts. It's the repentance. It's the desire to grow, to to reach to God. That's what gives us God's blessing of us, God's adoring us, God's deep appreciation of us. It's our efforts. It's not our results. It's the efforts. Look, sin always has greater unintended consequences. Sin has a ripple effect. David's decision to number resulted in the death and sorrow of countless families and meant genealogies that might never, uh, that might have been, were cut off. With such a massive consequence to Israel, it makes sense that atonement and forgiveness would take place at the very spot where the first human picture of the ransom took place with Abraham and Isaac. 
That's the first picture of the ransom of Jesus. And it's that spot. That's the blessing. It's not because of the sin. It's because of God's grace. So Julie, wrapping this up, how does God bless? Well, when we are influencers, some of our individual sins can have far-reaching effects on many around us. So as we repent, learn, and grow from these, God can use and even indelibly mark the path we are on to still bless us and others. Okay. As we repent and grow and learn, God can use our experience. The sin is not what brings the blessing. It's the pathway we take after we have sinned that God can appreciate us and show us a higher and better way and indelibly mark that path so we never, ever forget it. Ego is such a godless waste of time. Too much power and too much me equals a massive need to repent. What about when our sins are a result of weaknesses or lack of discipline? Can God bless us in this case? It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions Ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. Imperfect humans naturally seek out less strenuous ways to be acceptable to God. The resounding and unalterable answer to this is that God does not bless us because we're sinful. Rather, he blesses us because of our efforts to rise above sin. So let's go to an entirely different example. I know this is Julie's favorite example. The disciple John Mark is a good example of how the effort to rise above sin works. But Julie, before we get to the example of John Mark, we have to go back to your quiz, which is um, kind of distressing at this point. I got to say, you're not bringing up good things here. So what's next? <laughs> All right. So we've had Tamar or Tamar, Rahab, David, and the king, King Solomon. And I'm going to give you another king. This is King Ahaz. He's an evil king of Judah who in 2 Kings 16.3 and 2 Chronicles 28.3 burned his children as human sacrifices to the god Moloch. Great. I don't think we can get worse than that. Um, so, yeah, what does he have to do with blessing? Jonathan, this isn't looking good. <laughs> Not at all. You know, you're bringing up these examples of heinous sins, and all of them have something to do with blessing. Okay, obviously you wouldn't be asking the question if that wasn't true. So you've got to say, okay, what's the point of that? Well, let's get to the next segment and then we'll find out how this all fits together. All right, let's focus on John Mark. John Mark was a young follower of Jesus. His family played a really significant role in the early church. And this is explained to us in Acts chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So this is interesting. Peter, when he's let out of prison by the angel, 
immediately goes to the house of, uh, of John Mark's mother. He knows the fellow followers would be there. That's a testimony to the faithfulness of that, fa- that family. That's a real strong testimony. John Mark's zeal must have been noticeable as Barnabas and Saul, who would later be named Paul, saw exceptional value in him. Acts chapter 12, a few verses down, verses 24 and 25. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. You know, you don't go on a missionary journey with the Apostle Paul just uh, arbitrarily. These are difficult, uh, very, very focused missions. And it says that Barnabas and Paul took John Mark with them. So now in Acts 13, 1 to 5, they were in Antioch and they were guided to go to Cyprus. The text specifically names John as their helper. Okay, all good. This journey is demanding. At some point, at some point we're told that John Mark quits. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so here's the question. Was this sinful? Yes. Why? John Mark didn't fulfill his commitment. So what was the consequence? Well, uh, after that, after that first missionary journey, we go to Acts 15, 36 to 40. Now remember, John leaves in the middle. Acts 15, 36 to 40, Jonathan will take this in a couple of pieces. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Okay, so they want to go and they want to redo the circuit and do more missionary work. And, and Barnabas says, yeah, and let's take John Mark. And Paul says, nope, nope, absolutely not. Not a matter of discussion. So Barnabas is like, well, yeah, we should take him. And Paul's like, yeah, no, we shouldn't. What kind of a disagreement was this? Well, let's look at Acts 15, uh, 39 and 40. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to go uh, with the grace of the Lord. Okay, so a sharp disagreement. Not just, ah, no, I see it this way and I know you see it that way. It's okay. We're talking about some serious dissension between these two. And they ended up splitting up. They, they, they went separate ways because this dissension was so great. So this is another costly individual sin on the part of John Mark, and it was committed by a young man, and it was committed most likely out of weakness. This sin had a harsh effect on those around him as it created a division between two dedicated gospel ministers. Yeah, but I've got a question. So how is this a sin when John Mark just changed his mind? Like, how do we know he didn't just get sick or have some emergency back home that he needed to get to? Why are you saying he sinned? Because he did. (laughs) How do we know John Mark just didn't get sick and all of that? If the Apostle Paul says he deserted, 
Okay, and that's what it said in verse uh, 30, uh, 39, okay, or 38 rather. It says he deserted. The word means to withdrew, withdraw. Then we assume, let's assume the best when he, when he says he withdrew, that he was overwhelmed by the experience and did not fulfill his commitment. It doesn't say he was called away. It doesn't say something came up. It doesn't say circumstances changed that John Mark was needed elsewhere. It says he deserted, okay? This is very, very, very significant. So further, the fact that Paul was so opposed to John's further contributions indicates desertion and a lack of self-discipline. That's what the Apostle Paul saw. So, no, this was serious. This was, I, I committed to do something, and I did not follow through for whatever reason, weakness, fear, whatever. He left them vulnerable because he was relied on to be there to support them. Well, you're right. You're right. You know, all of a sudden you start out with X number of people, and this is an important mission, and you don't take people along just for, hey, come for the ride. It's going to be fun. This is come for the work. It's going to be grueling. And when one of those people goes down, you know, what are you supposed to do? So, yeah, Julie, it, it was a sin. Mm-hmm. And, I see that. But you know what? It could have been out, purely out of weakness. Do we think it was, it was uh, you know, a purposeful thing? No. We really, really believe that. It was out of the weakness of his, of his constitution. I don't think I can do this. And so he left. So let's fast forward. Many wait, years. wait, I'm not Whoa. done with my questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I got two more questions. One came in just now from a listener of our Christian Questions app. But my question is, for those who are living a life of consecration, trying to do the Lord's will, can you explain how the act of Jesus dying on the cross allows them to stay in a relationship with God, even when they're sinners? And I'm not talking about these willful sins. You know, there's daily sins that we may not even realize are wrong. John Mark didn't live up to his commitment. And maybe we do something, we don't realize that we put another person in the bind. We don't want to hurt them, but we've missed the mark, which did not result in adoration for God. That's our new definitions. So how does the how does Jesus's death and ransom fit into a consecrated follower of, of Christ? Okay, that is the key. It doesn't fit in. It is the overriding principle of our entire lives because we do commit sins, and a lot of times we don't even know it because we miss the mark all the time. So the point is that when we go to, the, to, to, to God through Christ in prayer and we ask for forgiveness, we know that Jesus' ransom was paid for us, and it was paid in full, and we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus. And as we remind ourselves God, forgive me of the sins that I have committed, those that I know of and those that I don't know of, because I know there's more. God accepts the effort, the desire, the will to be in line with him as through the filter of the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. And when our imperfect—it's like our dirty water is filtered through the robe of righteousness and it comes out the other side clean every single time. So we need that robe, that righteousness of Jesus, because that's what forgiveness really is. And we can stand up and stand in full confidence that we are forgiven and try again tomorrow. And when we fall down, and we will, we go through the same process and again and again and grow through it. And that's where God's blessing comes from. So Jesus is our covering, and without it, we're dead to God. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I never thought of in my prayers, you know, I, I, I know what I'm praying forgiveness for, but I don't think to pray for the what I didn't know I didn't do right. 
you know, and I want to adore God and I want him to be adored by my actions. I want him to know that he's holy. Well, I have just another quick question for you because it just came in, like I said, on the Christian Questions app. And it has to do with sin producing blessing. We have a listener who is upset because they have been betrayed and the person that betrayed them is seemingly living a, an amazing life. And, you know, the Bible says the wicked do prosper. So sin produced blessing. They, this person who did this big sin is, is getting all these wonderful things. Okay. The definition of blessing is adoration and appreciation from God. So I would be curious to know if this person who wrote that comment believes that that person is blessed of God or has a lot of nice stuff. There's a world of difference between people who have stuff and those who are blessed, adored, appreciated by God. Yeah. Which would you rather have? God's appreciation or stuff? Take your time. Or the dictionary definition of blessing. Right. And, and that's the thing. This is about God's blessing. This is not about good things in life. Yeah, you know what? Bad people right. get good things in life. But I also would submit to you, when in, in that question you said this person is, quote, seemingly living this way and that way and the other way. Seemingly has a whole lot of meaning. Just because you think it's that way doesn't mean it is. Just because somebody has a bunch of stuff doesn't mean they're happy. Okay, how many, how many celebrities that we know who have been lauded by millions and had the mansions to have taken their own lives? That's right. So let's not get confused with stuff and God's blessing because they are worlds apart, worlds apart. Okay, let's get back to John Mark. He did sin. It was a big sin, and it had a bad effect, and it really had a bad effect on the Apostle Paul. Now, someone, someone may argue that, well, you know, the, the, the missionary work now could be twice as big because, you know, Paul and Silas went one way and Barnabas went another way. Now they're doing twice as much work. You know, the blessing wasn't because of the sin. The blessing was because both Paul and Barnabas there were determined to continue the work. And if they felt they couldn't work together, they worked separately, and they still worked. It's not the sin that got them that. It was their determination to do the will of God. Let's be clear, okay? Now, many years later, many years later, the Apostle Paul is in chains. Here's what he says. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 to 11, a letter from prison. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, cousin uh, Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. You see this? The Apostle Paul in chains is talking about John Mark and saying, he has proved to be an encouragement to me. What a powerful testimony to the growth of John Mark, to the realization of his sin and his mistake and his weakness and to growing up and to being a, a blessing to the Apostle Paul in so much that he writes about him. That's powerful. That's enormous. The blessing to John Mark didn't come because of the sin. It became, came because of what he did as a result of his bad decision. He changed, he grew, he matured, and he was a blessing. And further, still later, Paul, Paul is now at the end of his earthly road. 
2 Timothy is his last writing before he dies. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, at the end of 2 Timothy, right near the end of Paul's writings here on earth, here's what he says. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Look at that. For. Look at that forgiveness that Paul gave to him. You know, I, I see a parallel here. Paul Mark, Paul forgives Mark just as Jesus forgave Peter. It should give us confidence that God's people are merciful and forgive us when we make mistakes. Both Mark and Peter were blessed from their growth, maturity, and effort, not from their sin. Sin did not produce the blessing. The growth as a result of a mistake produced the blessing. Never forget that. Never forget that. Okay, Julie, let's wrap this segment up. How does God bless? Well, personal sins and immaturity can have harsh effects on those around us, even causing divisions. Yet God can work with these broken pieces. It's only when we apply ourselves to growing past those sins that we can have the opportunity to heal some of the hurt we have caused. Growing past our sins. That, my friends, is what produces the blessings. Even weaknesses, our weaknesses need to be observed. My weakness can cost others their ability to continue in unity. Sin does not bring blessing. How do we protect ourselves from the traps of our own human thinking? Personal Bible study is so rewarding. So many of our listeners have asked if we could provide an online Bible study course. We're happy to announce a new library of thoughtful questions based on each episode's CQ Rewind show notes. Each study is a compact, single page of thought-provoking questions with scripture references and more. These are perfect for your individual study or small groups. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on Bible study in the main menu to get started. What's next in our audio study, Rick? We are our own worst enemies. Our fleshly desires are strong. They easily and often toy with our minds, prompting rationalized thinking to support them. The Bible is full of examples of this dilemma, and fortunately, it's also full of remedies for such challenges. We simply need to get serious about dealing with our sins and dealing with our own imperfect minds. Okay, so before we get started, Julie, back to the CQ quiz. Here we go. What have you got? Here is your last clue. Ready? Okay, yes. King Manasseh. Do you remember who King Manasseh was? He is the son of good King Hezekiah. And I'm just going to let 2 Kings 21, 2 to 6, in the New Living Translation, I'm going to just excerpt it, give you an idea of what he was like. You ready? Yes. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. He rebuilt the pagan shrines his father Hezekiah had destroyed. Manasseh also sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced sorcery and divination. He consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. And it goes on to say how Manasseh led the people to be even more evil than the pagan nations the Lord had destroyed when the Israelites first entered the land. And it continues with verse 2116. Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. So 
when the Lord's prophets come, like remember you said the Lord sends prophets, when they come to condemn him, he just has them all killed. And that's in Jeremiah 2.30. Shockingly, he eventually repents, but the consequences of his sins remain in that his people were corrupted and they continue to worship false gods. All right, those are my clues. Tamar, Rahab, David, King Solomon, King Ahaz, and King Manasseh. What do they all have in common? What did their sinful lives have to do with blessing? All right, Julie, what's the answer? They are all listed as the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, in Matthew 1, 1 to 16. And I have a soundbite for you. And when we've gone through the entire line, we're left scratching our head, wondering, what are we to make of this tree through whose branches came the Savior of the world? What are we to make of all the sin, all the imperfection, all the failure? God's purposes are not thwarted by our humanity, however weak and wayward it may be. That He works in us and through us, and more often than not, in spite of us. That He works with us, as a gardener works with His garden, lifting, pruning, watering, weeding, whatever it takes to bring it to fruition, or however long it takes. This is our hope, that season after season He walks the uncultivated fields of each generation, His providential hands at work in the dark, cloddy soil. His careful eyes at watch over the growth, watching over the budding faith of the young and over the branching influence of the old, so that something beautiful may blossom from our frail and nubby reach for the sky. I just love that, that God works in spite of us. So he can take our sin and it can, with repentance, with obedience, with Jesus's sacrifice, it can turn into blessing. And I just thought the greatest blessing we have is Christ Jesus. And here, this lineage that is so marred with all this awful, awful sin can produce the Savior of the world. So in spite of their depths of degradation, God's plan always comes to fruition. In spite of our sins and our falling short and our missing the mark, as our efforts are toward God, we can be appreciated by God and he can bless us. And again, that's what blessing means, God's profound appreciation and his adoration of our attempts to do things in line with him. So great lesson of the lineage of Jesus not being a great lineage. It doesn't matter. What matters is God's will will be done in spite of all of that sin. Thanks for that. A really, really uh, ex- excellent addition to looking at this whole subject. So let's come down, because at the beginning of the, the podcast, I mentioned there's one word that we want to focus on in this segment, okay? So this all comes down to learning to discern, learning to discern between good and evil, righteousness and rationalization. Psalm 51, 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Okay, the need for discernment is nothing new. Humanity's history overflows with the wreckage of rationalization. And and Jonathan, you said history repeats itself. Oh, yeah. That's the wreckage of rationalization coming up again and again and again. Isaiah 5, 20 to 21 reminds us of this. 
Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Okay, we have several discernment principles we want to leave you with in this final segment. Julie, what's our first discernment principle? Mature spiritual discernment is indicated by your spiritual diet, as explained in Hebrews 5, 13, 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. Understand, it's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to sit and listen. But we must be able to absorb the deeper things of God so we can learn to grow up and discern the difference between that which is good in God's sight and that which is not good in God's sight. Mature spiritual discernment is indicated by your spiritual diet. What have you been eating spiritually? That will help you to understand what it is, what level of maturity you are growing to. Okay, that's the first principle. Julie, what's our next discernment principle? Okay, this principle is huge. Do not sin just because you have forgiveness available. And that's found in Romans 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. So, you know, when people hear the truth in the Bible that Jesus died for every man, woman, and child, and they'll be resurrected and have a chance to learn righteousness in the kingdom of God with this opportunity to live forever, the first thing I hear them say is, well, then, if that's true, why should I be good now? Why don't I do whatever I want? Because there's no consequence. And the answer, of course, is, well, there will be punishment. The Bible calls it stripes. And you don't want to be so far depraved that you can't walk up that highway of holiness in Isaiah 35. We can't build our theology on our being able to sin like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Just because we have forgiveness doesn't mean we, we, we can do whatever we want. Now let's look at the other hand, the spiritual side. If footstep followers of Jesus, those who are given God's Holy Spirit, keep willfully sinning, that is like, taking off Christ's robe of righteousness. Not only will they not receive a blessing, but they are putting themselves in danger of no life in the kingdom of God. You know, when we commit a sin, as that that, that child of God, we want to ask forgiveness and then live in a repentant way. And by doing that, we are blessing God. We are deeply appreciating him we realize the forgiveness of Jesus and we have to make it a part of our life because we want to adore our creator like Jesus, his actions glorified God. So no matter who we are, no matter what age we're talking about, the principle of blessing God applies. We receive blessings from God, God's adoration, his appreciation when we strive toward him. Whether you are on trial for life now as a a, a, a footstep follower of Jesus, or whether you are will be on trial in the day of judgment. Either way, it means reaching up toward God and trying to, to be obedient. Remember, God's plan is built on harmony. Harmony in God's plan means obedience to God's will. We have to grow to that point. Do not sin just because you have forgiveness available. 
a bad, bad idea. And if you want to make a deal with God, I'll tell you now, you lose. Okay? Next is discernment principle, Julie, is what? Realize the ease with which the gospel is corrupted. And, and that's that, in Second Peter 2, 1-3. to But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you, who will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring swift destruction upon themselves. Okay, so let's pause right there for a minute, because it's easy, it's easy to corrupt the gospel. And if we walk away from the original gospel to traditions of men, we end up walking down a path that is not blessed, not appreciated of God. Okay, let's be clear. And that brings us another discernment principle in the middle of the Second Peter scripture. Julie, what is it? Well, when we find a, and I'll air quote this, new way to understand the word, and it just happens to fit in with what we humanly desire, we need to be profoundly aware because we're twisting the scriptures to what our desires are. Got to be careful of that. And Jonathan, back to Second Peter 2, verse 2 and 3. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and their greed, and they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So the word is out that these things will happen, that the, the, the gospel will be corrupted by those who want to satisfy their own desires. And, it's, and God is very, very specific here through the words of Peter. Their judgments from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. It may look like they can do whatever they want until the judgment of God is put upon them. Make no mistake, sin never produces blessing. My will, unless it's perfectly in line with God's will, will never produce blessing, will never produce appreciation from God and, and, and his adoration of my attempts to grow in him. Our final discernment principle, Julie, is what? The written word does supersede all of our personal experiences. This is enormous. The written word is over everything. Peter testifies of his own personal experience of hearing the voice from heaven proclaiming Jesus as God's beloved son. That's pretty powerful. And yet here's how he categorizes that particular personal testimony from the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, this is a miraculous experience that he sees with his own eyes. And here's how he treats it. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And we ourselves heard these words come from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And in the written word of prophecy, we have something more permanent, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dimly lighted place until day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But above all, remember that no prophecy in scripture will be found to have come from the prophet's own prompting, for never did any prophecy come by human will, but men, seen by God, spoke as they were impelled by the Holy Spirit. So what is the Apostle Peter saying? He's saying, I had this magnificent personal experience. Now look, that was just one of many magnificent personal experiences that the Apostle Peter had. He, had, he was with Jesus for years. He watched the miracles. He watched Lazarus being called from the grave. He was there. And yet the Apostle Peter himself says, but we have the more permanent word of prophecy. What we have is the history of God's word through ages and generations telling us of his plans and his purposes. Those are all the collective things we need to be focusing on, 
not what I saw, but what God said. So this is a remarkably powerful way for us to understand that in order to be blessed of God, to have his appreciation, to have his, uh, his adoration, we need to be seeking him through all of our mistakes. Julie, our final point on how God blesses. Today, more than ever, it is far too easy to find ways to make the scriptures fit into our thinking and desires rather than sacrificing our thinking and desires in order to follow scriptural teaching. Be careful. God does not bless lax scriptural interpretations. Got to understand the power of God's word, God's will, God's way, and that sin is far removed. Folks, we need to really be clear in our own minds in terms of how to put this all in perspective. We all sin. And you know what? We all sin every day. But the point is not the fact that we sin. The point is, what do I do with that sin? If I seek to rise above it and ask forgiveness and take steps forward, God adores our effort. He loves us. He profoundly appreciates us. And we can bless God. We can adore him. How? By working to rise beyond our own sins. It's not the sin that brings the blessing. It's the effort and God's will that brings it to us and through us. So then we can bless God and then bless others. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Now, coming up next week, this is important. Coming up next week. We're going to begin a two-part series. And folks, this is, this is, tell your friends, tell your neighbors about this. Does my anxiety or depression invalidate my Christianity? Please join us.